started. Um, we'll have a, <clears throat> let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer first, then we'll get started. Okay. Father, we're just very thankful for your grace in our lives, for all the things that you've provided for us and all the things you've given us. Father, above all, we're thankful for your word that you have revealed to us down through the centuries and that you have given this to us in order that we might understand and know the truth. And so, Father, as we now move forward in our uh, study of how to study the Bible and continue to probe uh, the basic principles for Bible study, we shift gears into interpretation tonight. Pray that we might uh, understand this important aspect and dimension of Bible study as we go forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Tonight we're shifting gears. We've gone from application and now we're going into interpretation. And I think that the way I set this out, um, the last time we got together was to tonight look at 27, 28, and 29 in the Living by the Book, those three chapters. Then <clears throat> next time, which will be the, what's today, the 8th, the 15th, we'll look at context, content, context, and comparison, 30 to 32. Then the next Sunday night, which is two weeks from now, which is the 22nd. Now on the 22nd, couple of things changed for me personally. Um, that, I'm, I'm not sure whether we'll meet the 22nd or maybe the next week. I know I had that scheduled that we'd meet on the 22nd and have the 29th off, but um, <clears throat> my, because uh, my wife was going to go down to uh, Mexico to spend that week and go visit her father. Well, her father passed away right before, a week before Thanksgiving. So, I may have to drive her somewhere, and I'm just waiting to figure out what that schedule is, so that's kind of up in the air. Sorry about that, but with limited time off, when you're married to a teacher, you're sort of uh, restricted to their schedule and not your own, so uh, we'll see what happens then, but um, anyway, one way or the other, we will look at 27 to 29 tonight, 30 to 32 next week. 33, 34, and 35 will come in there. Before I go to Kiev, we should finish all these sections down to 38. Okay? So we get interpretation in before I go to Kiev, and then in February, after I'm back, we'll finish the section on application. And that'll take us through this, this particular, particular chapter. Now, if we look at interpretation, there are several things that we need to think through when we think about this whole concept of interpretation. Interpretation becomes has become a critical issue in many areas in our culture, especially when it comes to religion and law. And there are a lot of things that are in common with those two things, and when things get to the point where where there's disagreement, then... Um, there, there's always this discussion about interpretation, and it impacts both. And, it really, and, and the problem that we've come into historically in the last 200 years is that the center of truth has shifted from outside of man to inside, so that up until you have the 
what's called, usually referred to as the Kantian revolution in knowledge. Uh, for Immanuel Kant, who was a Enlightenment philosopher, really at the end of the Enlightenment in the <clears throat> late 17, Hundred seventeen around seventeen seventy five seventeen seventy six he writes a book called the Critique of Pure Knowledge, and in there he puts forth a theory of knowing. How do you know truth? How do you know that something is, and it's true? He puts he shifts to the the center of truth being that we don't know things as they are in and of themselves. We only know things as we perceive them. So that you may look at a, an object and see one thing, you may, and I may look at an object and say, no, this is something else. You may read a poem and say, well, this is what it means to me. And it, it and truth therefore is not what the author intended when it comes to, um, liter- literary interpretation. It, it, truth is what the impact that that has on you, what it means to you. So this destroys objective truth in, in anything because we can no longer know things as they are. And it's called the Copernican Revolution in Knowledge. Now, if you think about Copernicus, what's Copernicus known for? Copernicus, like Galileo, is known by realizing the <clears throat> empirical truth that the solar system revolves around the sun and not around the earth. And so this is this major shift in our perception of the solar system and the universe, that the earth isn't the this, this center of everything. And, and that's what happens in knowledge, is knowledge is no longer, the center of knowledge and truth is no longer out there. It's now inside the person who is perceiving things. And this impacts everything. And it has changed everything. You know, it takes a while before this works itself out in intelligentsia, within academic circles, and it, you know, shifts its way down to people. But by the early 20th century, most people in Western civilization are no longer thinking of objective truth in quite the same way that they did prior to Immanuel Kant. And today we really see this when we talk about things like the Constitution, interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. It's viewed as a living document. Its meaning changes over time. Now, there are a lot of parallels to that with what is going on in in the study of the Bible because the meaning of the Bible changes over time. And most of you probably talked to somebody and they said, well, that's not what that verse means to me. Uh, you'll hear that kind of a comment. Or you'll hear, well, things are different now, so it doesn't mean the same thing. And so we have to address the whole concept of what does, what does the word meaning mean? How do we understand that? Is there, or, or is there absolute unchanging truth? This impacts language. Language is, it has an inherent logic, uh, in, in its own. And so linguistic theory in the last hundred years has been radically impacted by this view, uh, of, of meaning. And so you have, in, in its most extreme form, you have postmodernism where there are no absolutes. 
And anything can mean whatever the reader or the hearer wants it to mean, unless, of course, I'm a postmodernist writing a book explaining postmodernism, and then you have to understand it and interpret it in, in light of what I want it to mean. That's the inherent contradiction within postmodernism and, and the problem with, with subjectivism. So the study of, of meaning, the study of communication, the study of interpretation is all is all connected, and it's connected to language. And when we think about just uh, the, the, the whole concept of communication, we think about the word logos that John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is identified at, by this by this term, Logos. Logos is one of those phrases or one of those terms in Scripture that has many different meanings. Let me just go to John 1 here uh, in the, so we can look at this. In the beginning was the Word. If I do a right mouse click on this, I can go and select the root word Logos, and then we can open up the... Um, our basic Greek lexicon in order to see what is, what is stated there. The word logos means communication whereby the mind finds expression. So a word then is formulating and expressing a concept, an idea that has, uh, pre-existence as it were before it's put into a word in the mind. So it's fundamentally intellectual, not emotional. We're not exp- it, it may convey an emotional, an emotion, but a word is primarily something that is, that is rational. As we scroll down through the dictionary here, we see um, <clears throat> some different meanings to this word. Uh, Get past a couple of these. The lexicons list a lot of different things. It can re- mean an assertion, a declaration, a speech. Um, trying to skip down to some other, a matter or a thing. Uh, it can mean uh, computation, reckoning, accounting. This would relate to numbers. Numbers are logical. This is. Our English word logic comes from the Greek word logos, uh, as well as our word for study. So it's, it's, um, can indicate something here like the reason or cause for something. So it has to do with reason or an explanation of things. It's used, of course, of God, uh, of Christ, rather, it's the expression of God. Uh, that's as far as that goes. Uh, other dictionaries have a few more. Uh, concepts to them, but what we see is that logos, logic, is inherent in communication. And so that is what allows us to communicate with each other. There is a common uh, uh, unifying common ground between two people who are communicating in terms of the meaning of language and the structure of language and the grammar and syntax of that language so that one person can say, make a statement to another person and reasonably expect the other person who has, shares the same language to understand what has been said, 
in terms of what the author intended. Now, if we take that just a little bit further, we have an example that I've used there just of two people, two human beings communicating with each other. But when it comes to the Scripture, what we have is a case of God communicating to us. And God is God is communicating his ideas and thoughts to us. Now, we understand that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But God can communicate to us. And and why is it that God can communicate to us? It goes back even further to the importance of the doctrine of creation, of course, another doctrine that is very much under assault in modern times. God, as the creator, created man in his image and his likeness. Genesis 1, 27, 28 talks about this, that we're created in the image of God, so we reflect God, we share in certain finite components of deity, including uh, rationality and the ability to communicate and to receive communication. So God b- constructs the first human beings in a way that they <clears throat> have receptors within their intellect and within their physical makeup that allow them to hear and understand what God is saying to them so that it's not like you've just been plopped down in some foreign country, some foreign language, and you're just hearing what appears to be uh, just gobbledygook. Uh, God created man to uh, commu- to receive his communication and to understand it. And I think that's a fundamental principle in hermeneutics. I remember getting in a discussion with someone some years ago where this became an issue of contention. How can man understand God? Well, we have to go back to this presupposition that God created man to understand what God said to him, and therefore that tells us that God's communication to man is under, is comprehensible. We can comprehend it. We can understand it. God has made us, and God wants us to understand what he has communicated to us, maybe more so, more than we want to try to understand it. So it's not a matter of guesswork. God isn't using some sort of special language in order to uh, communicate him, himself and his word to us. He's doing it in a way that that uses the normal structures of human communication in order to uh, make himself known. Now we go to a passage in many many uh, works on uh, hermeneutics use this same uh, illustration because it fits the the topic as a as an introduction. Uh, Hendricks uses this at the beginning of his chapter twenty seven, and uh, so does Roy Zuck, and so do many others. And this is the episode in Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian is a high official, intelligent individual, uh, educated individual. He is probably the, um, if not the Secretary of Treasury for Queen Candace, he is cer- certainly uh, close to the top. He's in charge of all her treasury, according to verse 27. And he's, he is a proselyte to Judaism. And he has come and he is... Ex- wealthy enough to have a chariot, to be riding in a chariot, and to possess a scroll of Scripture. Not everyone had their own scroll of Scripture. And he's sitting in the chariot, he's reading Isaiah the prophet, 
and God the Holy Spirit has miraculously moved uh, Philip, uh, the evangelist. This is the one of the six in Acts 6, or one of the seven in Acts 6, not Philip, the disciple, apostle, and sends him to <clears throat> overtake the chariot. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? Basic question that we could ask anybody. Uh, <clears throat> I think Hendricks makes it a point that if you sat down on the on the bus or on an airplane next to a person and they were reading a book and you said, do you really understand what you're reading? They would probably look at you as if you just insulted them. Uh, but when it comes to the scripture, it's a little more complicated or complex um, material, especially in terms of prophecy, in terms of poetry. People are reading a translation of something written in a different language, in a different culture, in a different time, and so it's not as easy for them to understand it and perceive it. So he asked a legitimate question, do you understand what you were reading? And the question he's asking is not just do you, are you able to understand the vocabulary and uh, therefore you can understand at a, at a basic level what is being said, but do you understand its implications, its significance for you? And to the answer to that question is really uh, no. He says, no, I, I can't. Uh, need, I need someone to guide me, someone to direct me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit next to him. And he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53 in terms of the prophecy related to the Messiah. And so he shows Philip what he's, what he's reading. And in verse 34, uh, Philip opened his mouth and beginning uh, at the scripture preached Jesus to him. So he is evangelizing him and showing how that scripture relates to Jesus. This is the foundation for understanding uh, understanding hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics takes us to the step beyond observation. We've spent the last uh, <clears throat> part of the class, uh, the last several weeks, looking at the t- topic of observation. And sometimes observation almost sort of uh, bleeds into interpretation as you start working with words and working with terms and working with uh, uh, syntax and structure, you're already starting to um, ask questions or come to answer some basic questions related to to meaning because meaning ultimately is going to be grounded in in words and how those words are used and what they convey and what they communicate. So when it comes to interpretation, some of the key things that you need to help are going to be Bible dictionaries as well as a concordance or a lexicon that explains the meaning of the word. And in sometimes just using dictionary, just an English dictionary to understand the English words because you may not know uh, Greek or Hebrew well enough to work uh, work there. Now, before we get any further, there are a couple of books that you might want to take note of or be aware of in terms of, of understanding hermeneutics. An older, oldie but goldie uh, book on interpretation was one written by Bernard Ram. Uh, this came out in the 50s, I believe, entitled... Protestant Biblical Interpretation. My copy is the third revised edition that came out in 1970. So maybe that was the original printing, and mine is the eighth printing in 76. 
This was a common textbook by many Bible colleges and seminaries uh, back in the the 70s and 80s until you had it uh, replaced by both Hendrick's book and another book written by Roy Zuck called Basic Bible Interpretation. And for conservative evangelicals, probably Roy's book is one of the most significant and most helpful. Now, that's a basic interpretive book, basic Bible, uh, basic book on interpretation. Uh, Elliot Johnson, who taught interpretation along with Howard Hendricks back in the 70s and 80s, and is still here. In fact, he's going to be our keynote speaker this year at the Chafer Conference in March. Um, Elliot is uh, uh, also teaches advanced hermeneutics at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Elliot's written a book on interpretation as well. But like I say, that's a little more advanced. Another book that's a little more advanced but probably will give you a lot of information that you should have, and I think that a lot of people who are pushing their their growth and understanding in Scripture is a book by Bob Thomas, Robert L. Thomas, called Evangelical Hermeneutics. And you can go back and listen to the lectures. John, you weren't here at that time, but you'll probably want to go back and listen to these. If you go back on the Dean Bible website, there's a link there to the Chafer Conferences, and you can go back about, I don't know, 2007, 2008. Uh, Bob Thomas was our keynote speaker, and he talked about hermeneutics. So that's a good place to to start. And he has some... some um, Great, in, great chapters in here just takes you to another level beyond what we'll cover in this introductory course. But he talks about um, the definitions of, of, of hermeneutics and other terms. Talks about uh, has chapters on the principle of the single meaning of the text. Something we'll go over that a text only has one meaning. Uh, he talks has a chapter on. Uh, the distinction between uh, hermeneutics and application has a chapter on modern linguistics and hermeneutics, gets in a lot of technicalities on that, has a great chapter on the New Testament use in the Old Testament. Now, if you've listened to me for very long, uh, I think that uh, it's not it's different, but I think the solu- the, that Arnold Fruchtenbaum's breakdown of the four different ways in which New Testament writers quote the Old Testament is uh, gives you a little bit better handle on this. Um, uh, he has, uh, Thomas has two ways, and I think the first way is similar to his one, the first of his two ways is similar to Arnold's first way, and then the other three that Arnold has are really different forms of uh, Thomas's second uh, second way. But he has also chapters on um, progressive dispensationalism, uh, hermeneutics and evangelical feminism, uh, hermeneutics of evangelical missiology, uh, the dating of revelation, open theism. And, and he deals with a lot of these different issues. In fact, he also has a chapter on, on dynamic equivalence dealing with translation and how hermeneutics impacts uh, translation and translation theory. And so that's a very important book to uh, to evaluate as well. Before we get any further, I want to start with a little bit of a definition, a more basic definition of hermeneutics and interpretation. This is a, a, a definition that is 
originated, I think, with a man by the name of David Cooper. David Cooper worked with an evangelistic organization uh, that um, uh, was oriented towards uh, towards the Jews and was uh, very influential in Arnold Fruchtenbaum's training. And the verse reads, When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Starts off talking about when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense. What he's saying there, as it's explained a couple of clauses later, where he says, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. That's what he means by uh, the plain sense of Scripture, where each word is understood within its uh, primary, that's in terms of everyday use, everyday language, primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. So if you look a word up in the dictionary and you have a definition, then that is what what you can look at to plug in uh, the meaning. So your default position, our default position, is that the plain sense of Scripture is um, is what the Scriptures mean. In other words, when God promises Abraham that he is going to give him the, the land that is uh, bordered by the river Euphrates and the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, and between um, Sinai and um, uh, the river Euphrates, this, these borders are literal borders. He's not talking about heaven. When you get into non-literal interpretation, which is the way in which your uh, covenant theology and amillennial theology, replacement theological systems interpret these passages, that later on, the land that God promised Abraham becomes spiritualized to heaven. So when God told Abraham to walk the length and the breadth and the width of the land that he was going to give him, do we think that Abraham could walk the length and breadth and width of heaven? Heaven's infinite. So this this doesn't make sense. So so spiritualization you know, really just eviscerates or guts the meaning of Scripture. And this is why some people who've grown up in in churches where there's spiritualized interpretation read the Bible and become confused because the literal surface meaning of the text doesn't fit what they've been told that it means, and they don't really know how to get from the literal meaning of the text to a an allegorical meaning of, of the text. And so they, they become uh, confused. So we emphasize a literal meaning of Scripture, the plain sense of Scripture, and often this is referred to as literal meaning. There are those who critique that and say, well, you're too, just too woodenly literal. That is a misrepresentation of literal interpretation because in literal interpretation we clearly recognize that there there's the use of, of figures of speech within the scripture. But those figures of speech are part of the common understanding of a language. So that even in, in English, when we use metaphor or simile or other figures of speech, 
we know what the figure of speech means, even though it's a non-literal figure of speech, it has a literal meaning. It, it communicates something specifically. It doesn't communicate something, one thing to one person and something else to someone else. So even idioms are interpreted literally. So when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, if it makes sense to think that Abraham walked the length and breadth and width of the land, he walked from uh, the north of Israel up towards Dan, and he walked all the way south towards Beersheba, and he walked to the Great Sea, and he walked across to the Jordan River, that that that's what he did. He wasn't walking dimensions in heaven. He wasn't uh, looking at something that didn't exist physically before him. And so we take it that way. That makes common sense. So we don't seek an additional meaning to it. So um, <clears throat> the definition, therefore, is, looks at every word. Terms are important and understanding how those terms are used. And we can look at different terms. For example, this morning we had a study on light in, in, the, um, in our study in Matthew. And light has a literal meaning where God said, let there be light. All was in, everything was in darkness in Genesis 1, 1, 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's talking about the literal meaning of light, that which uh, emanates from a light source and illuminates in the darkness, and it's the contrast of darkness. But then when we use it in another way in which it's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, Light is no longer used in a literal sense. It's now used in a figurative sense, but it borrows its meaning from the literal uh, concept of light, which brings illumination. And so there's a metaphorical meaning of illumination. It's also used in another metaphorical or figurative way in reference to holiness or righteousness. So we come to understand that words can function in two different ways, but they don't at the same time. When we look at a passage like John 1, 1, 4, I think it is, and him was life and the life was the light of men, John is either talking about light there as a physical light that emanates, or he's talking about a spiritual dimension of illumination. He's not talking about both. Okay, that goes back to a basic principle of the single meaning of Scripture. And so Scripture has only one meaning and one one sense. Therefore, we can understand it. So we look at words in terms of their primary, ordinary, usual, literal meanings. Okay, the literal meaning doesn't fit with John 1.4. So the facts of the immediate context, context is something we'll talk about. It's very important understanding meaning and interpretation. Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages. So that's where we start doing cross-referencing. And that's what I did this morning. As we went through the doctrine of light, what I was summarizing was how the different ways in which light is used to teach and instruct us. And how I did that was that I would uh, did a uh, basic word search on the word light, both the Hebrew word and the Greek word, and looked at all of the different passages related to light 
took the key passages that taught on different, and I just began to organize and categorize uh, those particular passages, and that's how we develop a, a, a topical study. Now, what I did was I organized that topical study in a um, in a logical manner, developing it from God being light, and then Christ, and then and then the, then the believer. But you could look at it in uh, in another way. Uh, where you look at it in, in the way in which it's developed in Scripture, starting with Genesis and working progressively through the Scripture uh, all the way to Revelation to see how new ideas are brought in and introduced to the concept of light. So context is important for uh, each of those things, and studying it in the light of related passages and then the, um, that last part, axiomatic and fundamental truths. These are fundamental truths that, uh, doctrinal principles, doctrinal truths that are derived from other passages of scripture. And then, uh, and the last phrase indicate clearly otherwise, unless the facts indicate clearly otherwise, unless the facts of the context indicate something different. So what we're basically saying is context rules, and we derive the meaning of a word from its immediate context. And so words can have slightly different shades of meaning depending upon how they're utilized with, within, uh, within the context. Now, <clears throat> as you look at, as we look at the Bible, we look at interpretation, we come to understand that people do not even, even among, um, People who are very, very much like-minded, they do not always understand or interpret Scripture the same, and and that's kind of confusing for some people in in, in the church. And there are a lot of a lot of reasons for this that are understandable and somewhat legitimate. I can think of one in particular that, as we interpret prophecy, and a lot of prophecy interpretation is very important, good to illustrate different issues. We come to a pass, the passages in, for example, Revelation 17 and 18 that deal with Babylon. Now, is Babylon talking about literal Babylon, or is Babylon talking, is Babylon being used in a figurative sense as a representation simply of the world system that Babel in the Old Testament, literal Babel, and later Babylon were the seat of opposition empires and religious systems that were in opposition to the truth. And so there are many uh, dispensationalists and others who have written in the prophetic area that think of Babel or Babylon as not literal Babylon, but this is kind of a code word for Rome. Uh, Rome, the revived Roman Empire being the seat of the power of the Antichrist, and so many, you, you've heard this, I've heard this throughout much of my life, but then by the 1980s, 1990s, there were some serious and significant biblical studies that were coming out. This was the time when Saddam Hussein had risen to power, and he was indeed trying to rebuild ancient Babylon and make it a significant cultural center in Iraq. And people like Charles Dyer, who at that time was at Dallas Seminary, now he's at Moody Bible Institute, and others were uh, doing reading, writing, and research, and basically came to an understanding that 
that there was no basis in Scripture for ever interpreting the term Babylon as a non-literal term that referred to something other than the literal city that was in Iraq. And in fact, if we're going to be consistent with a literal uh, interpretation, his literal historical grammatical interpretation, then that that fits. And we uh, we come to understand the the role of the history of interpretation that uh, from um, that a consistent literal hermeneutic or consistent literal interpretation has been at the very core of what is considered to be dispensational theology. And yet many dispensationalists came out of backgrounds where prophecy was interpreted as a in a historicist manner, which meant that it wasn't all future, it was ongoing, the fulfillment was ongoing in our lifetime, and that down through the ages coming out of a, uh, when almost everybody in the church interpreted everything allegorically in the Middle Ages, Babylon was was Rome, evil Rome, especially among early Protestants. Rome, the Pope, Roman Catholicism, that represented the thinking of Antichrist. And so this was very popular, and it's taken time for people to consistently work out the the basic principles of their theology or their uh, interpretation, and more and more people... Uh, more and more theologians within a dispensational framework are recognizing if it says Babylon, it means Babylon. It doesn't mean Rome. And even, um, and, and there's a passage at the end of, I think it's at the end of First Peter, where Peter is, is writing, um, from Babylon, or he sends a greeting to those in Babylon. And that was often taken to mean Rome, that, that Peter was in Rome. But the reality is the largest Jewish community in the world outside of Jerusalem was in Babylon, the descendants of those who had gone there in the captivity. And so Peter, it turns out, Peter had gone, what a more significant place to go as Peter the apostle to the Jews than to go to Babylon and evangelize the Jews that are in Babylon with the gospel. And so uh, if we understand Babylon in First Peter to be Babylon and not Rome, then all of a sudden we don't have a biblical foundation. There's no example anywhere in Scripture where a city is used in that way as a simply a representative or metaphorical term that doesn't have a literal meaning as well. Babylon does have a, a, a spiritual sense. It represents that culture that is in complete rebellion against God, but not, but not divorced from the literal meaning. In allegorical interpretation, the literal meaning doesn't have significance anymore. The only thing that's significant is the spiritualized meaning. So uh, what we're saying is not that Jerusalem doesn't have a spiritual meaning, but it always also means literal Jerusalem. Babylon means literal Babylon, even though that has a spiritual significance as well. You, it, the, the spiritual significance is never uh, divorced from the literal, uh, the literal meaning. So anyway, we have a lot of different ways in which people misread and misunderstand uh, the Scripture. For example, in John 10... 28, why didn't that work? 
Okay, John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Okay, a lot of people will read this to mean that nothing can take us out of Jesus' hand. We have eternal security. However, there are those who don't believe in eternal security, and they will interpret that to mean that no one can snatch a Christian out of God's hands or out of Christ's hands, but that doesn't mean they can't take themselves out of God's hand. Okay, two different views, two different interpretations. In Colossians 1.15... Uh, when it talks about Christ as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, there are have been those in church history who suggest that this means that there was a time when Jesus was created. He's the firstborn, that there was a time when Christ was not. That was the Arian heresy in the early church. Others understand this verse to mean that that uh, Christ is the first firstborn is a term of related to heirship and preeminence, and so the significance of the term firstborn isn't the first who's created, but rather the one who is the preeminent designated heir of the Father. And so there's a difference there in terms of understanding. Another classic is those who are charismatics believe that in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, there's a spiritual gift of tongues, and that continues for today. Another one that I think is rather rather fun that kind of comes out of our own camp, uh, as it were, in uh, Revelation chapter 9, we have the, um, the locusts that come out of the up the pit, out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given powers. The scorpions of the earth have power. Uh, they can't destroy the grass or the earth or any green thing. Um, but they were given authority. Uh, they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. They had the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. And how Lindsay and late great planet Earth uh, interpreted some of these things. For example, look in verse 9. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, armored helicopters. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. That's the sound of the helicopter rotors. Um, they had tails like scorpions. They're firing... Uh, uh, missiles and dropping napalm and various things like this, and he's interpreting this very much in terms of the military uh, armament that we had in the uh, in, in the early 70s. But that misses the point of a lot of these things. Uh, he also misses uh, some other things when he gets in, and he wasn't the only one. There were others who, with the sixth trumpet, releasing the four angels bound at the river Euphrates, and... Um, there's an army of horsemen, 200 million, and they've interpreted that to be a Chinese communist army of 200 million. And it was a big thing because as the Chinese had increased in population during the uh, 60s and 70s, they could field an army of 200 million. But if you read the text, uh, the 200 million are demons that are released upon the earth. They are not a human army. So these are differences in interpretation depending on how consistently you are in terms of not only liberal hermeneutic but also comparing Scripture uh, scripture with Scripture. Let's stop here. I've gone quite a bit. I want to take a break. 
for about five or ten minutes so we can get a drink of water, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other issues related to um, Bible interpretation. Okay?